0: This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a series of conversations about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. Welcome back. We have another conversation from the last Primer Advancing Ethical Research Conference. In my experience, this conference is one of the best places to bump into people from all over the research ethics world and have the kinds of unexpected talks that shape my work in IRB administration for the next year. If you hear some background noises during our time together, this is because there is always a lot going on at an AER conference. This time, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Robert Klitzman about The Ethics Police, his recent book about IRBs. This is a fascinating book with an inside look at how IRBs work. We tend to work behind what Laura Stark has famously called closed doors. A lot of the tension we feel between an IRB and a researcher derives from this lack of transparency. This is just a well-documented reality, but as we talk about in this podcast, researchers and others also do not always understand exactly why an IRB is important, or what it actually does. We dig into this question, and hear a lot of practical advice from Dr. Klitzman as we unpack his book a bit. Dr. Robert Klitzman is a psychiatrist and the author of eight books and contributes to the New York Times and other publications. He is a professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, where he is also the director of the Masters of Bioethics program. He has conducted research and written about a variety of ethical issues in medicine and public health to promote public and professional education concerning these issues, including the book, The Ethics Police, The Struggle to Make Human Research Safe, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. So it's such a pleasure to have you. Like many of us in the IRB world and that listen to this podcast, uh, I've been following your work since the 2011 Ethics Police paper, Great. which in 2015, I gather, I'm assuming that paper in part is what led to your book published in 2015, yes. The Ethics Police, Yes, The Struggle to Make Human Research Safe. Yes. What's the backstory there? What happened in, to lead you down this, this path of research that eventually turned into that volume?
1: So I am someone who believes deeply in the importance of research ethics. I've been working in medical ethics for a number of years, and I'm also a researcher, so I've studied how patients decide whether to get genetic testing done, how doctors decide whether to order genetic tests, how people with HIV infection decide whether to tell sexual partners about their behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And what struck me is that when I'm with researchers, they all complain about IRBs as being the ethics police. But when I'm with IRB folks, I see completely the importance of the work they're doing, and they're convinced that uh, they're doing great work. And I've always been struck that whenever there's a situation in which two people look at the same situation completely differently, that something's going on that's worth studying. And part of that is because I had, uh, had the fortune to study as an undergraduate with an anthropologist named Clifford Geertz. Uh, who You were actually a student of, I was of Dr. A, Gears. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, oh, that's wonderful.
1: So and he was a very influential anthropologist who right. argued that to understand a social situation, you don't want to impose your views on the situation because for years there would be Marxist anthropologists who would say everything follows Marxism or right. Freudians who'd say everything right. follows Freudism, Freudianism and he said you actually need to interview people in the situation to understand how they look at the situation.
0: Right, a thick description, a thick right? Description. That's S- exactly term for right. That. So
1: I decided to get a thick description of IRBs, uh, and part of the reason for that also is because IRBs, as we all know, were intended to do great good. They came out of or the, the National Research Act followed revelations about Tuskegee. Uh, and they're very important, obviously. There have been terrible scandals, and yet they've become increasingly controversial. So you now have the ANPRM, the Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, saying, let's revamp them. So what's going on here? And what struck me as I began to look into it, I said, how are these different views coexisting? I found that there had been very little work on how IRBs actually make decisions. So there have been a few studies of quantitative studies how many members are on an IRB and are they male or female and how often they meet, but very little Qualitative research or any kind of research on, on how they actually make decisions and how right. they look at the decision making they they do, uh, and a few colleagues had tried to get in and study IRBs and have been turned down. So IRBs don't want to be studied. So I just because they
0: didn't want somebody in the room watching their deliberation, watching what they're
1: doing. Yeah, exactly. And one can understand that, although right. there's we'll come back to that because there's there's a question there. And I should just say I think IRBs should be much more open to being studied because we would learn much more about how the process and how to improve it. Let's take a second to talk a
0: bit more about this. I'm a fan of what I describe as IRB variability research. We are seeing more and more research on the question, and longtime listeners of the podcast may remember that I have talked with Dr. Laura Stark about her book Behind Closed Doors. Her research on IRBs has covered similar territory as Dr. Klitzman's, and it all points to the idea that IRB variability is a concern worth talking about. If one IRB makes a different decision from another IRB, it sends a confusing signal to the research community. And in many cases, IRBs at the same institution can make very different decisions about the same kinds of research or ethical protections. At this point, there are two important questions for us all to answer. Why do IRBs seem to vary in the way they make decisions? and Should we find ways to make IRB decisions match a bit better? Both of these are loaded questions. If you're interested in hearing more about them, check out our conversation with Dr. Stark, linked in the description for this podcast.
1: So I decided to do is to study the chairs of IRBs and interview chairs about, and then other members about their experiences. So I ended up interviewing, I uh, went to the top 250 institutions by amount of NIH funding. I contacted the leadership of every fourth IRB, and I had a 55% response rate. So I interviewed 36 chairs, and then I asked half of them to distribute Information to members uh, and others. I ended up interviewing forty-six people from thirty-four IRBs. Is, and no that no one had done that before. That seems like a fair willingness to
0: participate, right? A fifty-five percent response rate. To,
1: did well, you anticipate less than that? Um, well, I wasn't sure. No one had done this, and there, as you mentioned, there's a few people who've studied at one or two IRBs, and mm-hmm. co- uh, my colleagues Chuck Litz and Paul had managed to study 11, right. eleven IRBs after trying many, many IRBs. So, so there are some. That if you know them, they're willing to to be open. Uh, but I think the IRB as a group didn't want to be studied. But if it's just an individual, uh, individuals are more likely to say, sure, I'm willing to talk to you because, uh, you know, I can control what I say. I mean, this is not, you're not going to see me saying something inappropriately. I forgot I'm being studied. or yeah, who I can knows understand why. That, Yeah, right. so anyway, so that was my what I did. And what I found constantly surprised me. So I found that there were a number of, as it's by the book, the ethics police with a question mark, because I should make clear, I don't think the IRBs are the ethics police. I think that the fact that they're seen that way is important to note. In other words, why is it that they're seen that way? Why is there such a misunderstanding between researchers and IRBs? Right. And on the one hand, I think a lot of researchers don't like IRBs because what they really don't like are the regulations. And the IRBs are the local face of the regulations. Researchers are blaming the messenger for the message. Right. Researchers we're used to are that. blaming IRBs. Yeah.
0: I I I can attest to as an right. IRB director that I, I fully know that I'm gonna bear the brunt of right. of misunderstanding.
1: Right. So and a lot of that is again, it's because what researchers don't like are following the regulations and so they're the IRB's sort of stuck in the middle. And again and again in many ways IRBs are stuck in the middle. Now that I want to say with all my love for IRBs, doesn't completely excuse some IRBs for at times doing things that I think are overreactions or not in the best interest of developing right. and working with researchers like as best Over reading a risk. Overreading a risk. And so but I found there were interesting reasons for that. So so overall, what I found is that there were issues concerning both the process of IRB decision making and the content. So in terms of the process, IRBs have to deal with the feds which are often difficult. So a lot of IRBs said they would call up OHRP and they'd say, well, you know, here's this particular study, and when you write, when 45 CFR 46 says this, do you mean this or that? Right. And what they find is that the feds will repeat back on the phone, quote, the regulations say, ba-dum, ba And they'd say, yes, yes, but in this particular study, <laughs> would you interpret it this way or that way? And they get back the answer, regulations say, ba-dum, ba So that's completely unhelpful. Right, so I think that the feds could do something that would be, have a hotline, could be more available, could really sort of open up the discussion, have a, a discourse, um, and I think in terms of where I'm going with this, I think there need to be, needs to be much more consensus in the field. I think there needs to be much more work to consensus in the field. What,
0: what does that mean? How, how would we develop consensus?
1: So right now, uh, a lot of IRBs say, well, we don't even have to try to have any consensus right. because we all just reflect our local community values. Correct. I found that that's not the case. So I found a lot of institutions have four or five IRBs or six IRBs. And in the the one institution with the same IRBs in the same community, they disagree. Right. Because often there'll be a cardiology study that'll go to several... Cardiologists and study ends up getting reviewed by two or three IRBs, and they'll disagree. Right. So it's not about local community values. That's not why IRBs disagree, and that's a very important finding. And IRBs disagree <laughs> with themselves over time. That's exactly uh, right, as I write in the book. So some IRBs say, you know, why did we approve this last year? There's all these problems, or they'll say, <laughs> a perennial problem. Right. Or, or why did we give this such a hard time? This is pretty straightforward. Sometimes a single IRB person will say, like, I don't know why I sort of didn't quite get this last time. I don't know, I can't believe I thought this was okay when I looked at it the first time. And a bottom line that I found is that this is a human process. IRBs were not a machine, and that's good. But there's good and bad with that. So on the one hand, it's a human process. On the other hand, it's a human process. And so what happens is um, the fact that many eyes are going to see something... I think lets. their are good catches. Often, it'll take the third doctor who will see a patient to realize, oh, it's a case of such and such that none right. of the other doctors picked up on. That's good, but it's human. It's it's going to be. It, it has all the wonders of human beings, but it has failties. And so, what I try to do is find out what are the areas that we need to work on to be better.
0: One of my favorite bits in ethics, please, is you, you quote Churchill, yes, uh, right. saying <laughs> right. that it's. The worst system, except right. for all the rest, exactly which is right. probably one of the truest things I've heard said about an
1: IRBs. Yes, and I think, I think that's true. So, uh, And I think I'm, I should say I'm a little concerned about the notion, let's have a quick fix. Let's just make central IRBs. That will solve the problem. Right, okay. And, and it'll solve some problems. It'll create some challenges. I think there's a lot of things we can talk about, about it, it's more complex than... Um, I think some people are thinking when they. But it's say, not
0: the fix for the kinds of things you're describing.
1: Well, so, right. So, so there's a, well, there's a few problems with IRBs. So one is that there are there is discrepancies between IRBs, uh, yes. and that we need to work on. The other thing, though, as you suggest, is there are some other challenges that IRBs face that we need to understand and therefore address and explore and I think try to get consensus. So IRBs are based deal with a lot of uncertainties. They're basically in the business of trying to figure out what are the possible future risks of a study that no one's ever done, against the possible future benefits of a study that no one's ever done. If if, the study had been done, we wouldn't need to redo it. Right. So we're trying to predict the future, and so there's uncertainty. Um, And the other thing is, you know, IRBs are trying to influence what PIs say and do with their staff. Who then say and do things with subjects, participants. And so it's a very downstream process. IRBs don't react don't don't interact with the participants whom they're trying to right. protect. It goes through several people. And so there's a tendency to get very anxious and put a lot of extra things in, hopefully that's In some, and around the
0: recruitment and consent all process. The stuff, right. Hopefully
1: that some will filter down. And again, this is a natural human process. And then there are other problems that come up. So I think a lot of the Uh, Members of IRBs who are themselves researchers have two hats. There's a question of how good does a science need to be. And I think at bottom what's involved there is a lot of IRB members who are also researchers will be on NIH study sections and they'll review papers for academic journals where the goal is that the science should be as good as it possibly can be. Whereas on an IRB, the goal, according to the regulations, is not to have the science be as good as it can be in terms of the quality of the science. Rather, it's to reduce risks and make sure that risks are commensurate with benefits. So a lot of IRB members, though, still have their uh, academic scientific researcher hat on, reviewer hat on, saying, well, the science could be better. Uh, And that's... You could maybe maybe that's what an IRB wants to be, but that's, but that's not, not in the criteria. For it's a not in the criteria, and I should also add that a problem is that there's no gold standard for assessing the quality of the science before the study is conducted. To yes. switch gears slightly,
0: yes. you have a wonderful lecture on YouTube. I'm not sure if you no, oh, it's on okay. YouTube or not. Called "Why Bioethics Matters." Oh, okay. And it's a 20 minutes right. discussion of why bioethics is important, and everyone should listen to it. Can I ask, in our context, why do IRBs
1: matter? So IRBs matter because researchers have an inherent conflict of interest. If I'm a researcher working on a study, I want my study to succeed. I'm putting in all this nights and weekends and time. I don't want to come up with the result of, I didn't get enough subjects nothing's happened, so I'm incentivized, or any researchers incentivized, to make his study work. If you're writing a novel, you want your novel to be good. If you're writing an academic paper, you want your academic paper to be good. So so, um, unfortunately, as a result, some researchers, not all, end up, I'll say, cutting corners, or doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And so you need an outside party to be looking at what's going on and saying, you know what? actually you actually do need to get informed consent there Because otherwise, researchers, if left to their own devices, are going to say, oh, this is minimal risk. Stanley Milgram saying, oh, my study's minimal risk. Or other, there's a long list of- Don't worry, don't worry, it's okay. (laughs) Uh, We can go ahead and do this. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, right, right. Oh, and and there's a long history of, of I mean, you know, the examples, and there's others, of course, that we all know, where researchers thought, this is fine that I enter this other subject in the study, even though the the first subject had problems. And so uh, you need an outside, group, an outside set of eyes to look at what's going on. And I, I think that's the major reason, uh, if I had to say. And so they're, they're, they're crucial. So that's not really describing
0: a rubber stamping process. That sounds like a conversation to me. Yes. So,
1: right. So it's a conversation, but you need some consistency. What you don't want, and this is what's led to the AMPRM, is you know when IRBs were created 40 years ago, most research was still a doctor studying patients in his, usually okay. like his clinic, right? right? Now to get enough patients and find that a new drug is significantly better than another drug, you need thousands of patients at dozens of institutions so you have dozens of IRBs involved. And a, pro- a, a real problem is that uh, uh, you know some IRBs will say yes, some say no, some say take two days to approve it, some take a year or two to approve it, some say changes, some say change that, and that gets in the way of science. Right. That's not good. We need to address that. The other thing I found is with central IRBs, and this is some further work I've been doing with Chuck from Paul Applebaum, uh, what I found in Ethics Police is that you know there's a debate, centralized or not. There's a question, what is a central IRB, how central, what studies would fit in that. But a few other things that came out in the book were the importance of curbside consults and okay. local knowledge. So a lot of IRBs said, uh, you know, what's good about our being local is that researchers seeing in the parking lot and um, we will say, hey, let me ask you a question. Right. I'm thinking of doing this, I you can do it this way or this way. What do you think? And they'll say, well, actually, you know, why don't you do it this way? think i will go
0: do better. So that, those encounters, those random encounters walking across campus are often where the
1: best IRB conversations happen. Exactly uh, right. So that's what we want to preserve. So my concern with going to a central IRB is you want to be able to have that. You don't want it to all be legalistic where I send a formal memo to you, you send a formal right. memo, you right. know, uh, memo back to me. It's just because that, it just gunks up the process and take months and it just the sort of informal exchange so that's I think that's important and I think that you want to find a way if we go to central IRBs as it looks like we're going in some ways that that's somehow preserved whatever that may be maybe it's a hotline but again I think the fact that it's someone you know that you trust right. it's not you know a random you don't know who the person is calling you up. But so having, maybe it's having a local representative of an institution who can do that, but but something like that.
0: And it's very difficult to, if you're, especially if you're overworked, to develop relationships with investigators over years Right, of correct. Work with yes, them, right, right. And, and work alongside of them developing research programs. That right. that kind of relationship right. is invaluable, correct. Uh, yet we don't really have any kind of uh, regulatory-based incentive correct. to... Right to hire to staff our offices enough to produce those relationships, or to spend our time per, uh, pursuing those relationships.
1: Absolutely, but I think that's the kind of thing that's not being paid attention to now in discussions about let's change the policy of central IRBs. I think's important, for instance. So I think there's what I found in the book, as I describe more fully, is you know sort of human things like that that are that are important that we want to preserve, and IRBs could arguably strengthen having open doors, you know, inviting researchers to meetings, which doesn't always happen, having external appeals, having a body of case law, in other words, precedent. A lot of IRBs have no institutional memory. Some will say, hey, wait a second, didn't we review a study like this like two years ago? Like, right. why did we decide? that? Didn't we decide there that actually we would do this? This is not, this should not be the case. Um, there should be a much more established precedent, sort of case law, where you know, in this case, this is what's done. We have wonderful electronics at this point and internet stuff. Right. We could easily set up much better database and and share it. You can take out proprietary information, but see, right. you know, maybe there's some differences. Maybe here's three cases of a placebo-controlled study where there's controversy and, and two IRBs said yes, one said no, but then people could comment on it. We can learn from each other. And a, right. It, and that needs to be organized in a way. Yes, there's forums and people ask a question and then it gets forgotten about and it gets re-asked two months later, but it should be logged somewhere. That It should all be on some kind of server that right. you can have a password-protected right. member of an IRB.
0: I know a problem that many of us are flummoxed by is you you, you lose an IRB administrator at an institution, and you lose the entire institutional memory of Correct. the IRB up until that point, right. and a, another administrator comes online and it's like
1: they're starting over again. Right. Right. So this, this, you know, we have there are gigabytes of data about all of us and everything else we do. What we look on it, what we buy on Amazon, what we, uh, you know, choose on Facebook, and they have algorithms, obviously, for seeing. You know, well, you you bought this book and this book, so you're going to like this. Right. Book, you like that music and that music. So, so they're ways of cataloging things, and we should be taking advantage of machine learning and artificial intelligence, and and the fact that there are extremely sophisticated. Uh, you know, programmers who could catalog stuff that we could basically take all that. And, you know, this kind of a study, it was a whatever the characteristics are, whatever, or an interview and find out what are the things that researchers are, rem- that the staff is remembering, that no one else is remembering or keeping tabs on that ends up being useful. Right. What kinds of studies do they say, oh, yeah, no, we had a similar study like All that?
0: All those data that, that just kind of slipped through
1: the cracks of the process Correct. are uh, extremely valuable. Extremely valuable, it ends up meaning we're reinventing the wheel. Um, because of that, yeah. Because right, of that. So right. again, I think these are the kinds of things going forward we need to really... Seriously, think about and they're doable, and they're things that are not in the ANPRM or the NPRM necessarily. Right? But I think there are these other things. You know, should be people be in the room for votes or not?
0: Uh. I, I can't confirm that as an IRV director. Anytime, if I ever feel like I'm reinventing the wheel, I'm probably doing something. Wrong, or I might—I've I, probably missed
1: something, or there's probably a breakdown of process. Somewhere. Right, right. But also, we, every IRB is now reinventing, making its own wheel. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, this is not efficient. If we want—I mean—the ways of increasing efficiency that are not decreasing the quality of the review, and I think we need to think creatively. You know, the regs were set up 40 plus years ago in a very different world. You know, and the IRB world needs to. Catch up, if you will, or needs. I think I think we could do more to be to work together more right. to be more efficient and uh, any more work like yours. <laughs> well, yeah, and so I, I would urge whoever listens, is, you know, if your IRBs approach to be in a study to say yes, because I can't tell you. I've recently involved in another study of central IRBs, and there are two. A lot of them don't want to be studied and observed, right. and I think you know that's unfortunate because you know we're only going to know. So I I ended up publishing 17 papers. I did this study, published 17 papers, which is a lot in a book. And I could have kept going, publishing more stuff, because you know how IRBs look at X, and I look and there, do nothing written about it. How IRBs look at, you know, conflicts of interest. How IRBs look at community members. How IRBs look at risks and benefits. How IRBs look at open doors. How IRBs look at researchers.
0: This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you
1: for joining us. We will see you next time.